A young man was applying to join Starfleet. Where were you born? asked the recruiting officer. Earth, sir. What part? All of me, sir. Listening to Surf to Sleep. It's a podcast for sleepy heads where your host, me, Mr. Producer, uh, surfs the internet. I might uh, describe what I'm hearing on a podcast, or I might tell you about uh, a movie or a TV show that's available for streaming. It's also that you can put your device down and get some sleep because we all know that. Uh, being up in the middle of the night, holding your phone above your head, waiting for it to crash down uh, on your face is uh, not not a not healthy for sleeping. It destroys that good old melatonin uh, that we that we need to get some sleep. So I'm here to do all that for you. You don't have to worry about it. You can just close your eyes, try to rest, and I'll surf the internet for you. If you feel that this podcast helps you and you think it might help other people, tell a friend. You can also subscribe to the podcast so that you can get updates from your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can become a sleepy subscriber for 99 cents a month and get access to bonus episodes. Uh, you could visit... These are all ways you could help the show, by the way. You could visit ESP art.net that is uh, the current home of the podcast as of what is this January of 2022 that's the home of the podcast it's also the home of all the other projects I'm involved in you can follow surf to sleep on Instagram I'm not very active on that right now but I plan to change that real soon if you have a comment some constructive criticism or if you just want to say hello you can email me at surf to sleep uh, at gmail.com. That's surf to sleep at gmail.com. All right, and now for tonight's housekeeping. You will uh, realize or notice that this episode took a little bit longer to get out than normal. Usually I try uh, five to seven days, but it's been much longer than that this time. Uh, but don't worry. Mr. Producer is uh, still on it. Just had some other things, other projects going on, and uh, I had to be away from my studio for a, a while. Um, I'm actually recording this one in, well, I'm not going to disclose where. We're going to keep that a mystery, but it's a different spot. And if you hear a little background noise, I apologize. There's construction going on outside, but that's unavoidable where I am at the moment. Today's episode is a snooze reviews. That's where I sort of uh, pontificate on something in my life that uh, brought me joy, particularly uh, like a TV show or a movie or an album, something that you can experience online since the, uh, the whole premise of the show is that I'm surfing the internet for you. Um, with this one, we're going to do Star Trek, the original series. 
That's right. If you don't like Star Trek, don't worry. This really it is not about that. It's about, well, being very boring. Uh, so that you go to sleep, and uh, this is more background noise anyway. I realize that, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, but yeah, Star Trek the original series is what we're going to review today. I've got a, an old interview from the 60s of Mr. Leonard Nimoy queued up. Uh, may he rest in peace. And I'm going to uh, just go over some older articles and uh, something from... Uh, well, what's it called? Uh, uh, Memory Alpha, which is a, a great fandom website uh, for Star Trek and other stuff. I think other stuff. We're going to get into uh, uh, this old pulp magazine called uh, it's Astounding Stories. This is going to be a real, real fun one, I think. The other type of episodes I do are... Um, I'm feeling lucky, which is where I go to a random word generator website and uh, it generates, well, random words. And then I type those into Google and I use their I'm feeling lucky function. And then we just sort of explore the internet from there. But those are always fun. I, I mean, I have a lot of fun making these anyway. Um, and uh, there are more psychedelic ones or, or where we have a guest host. Um, and uh, it's usually an inanimate object or uh, an idea or an animal or um, something neat like that where I sort of anthropomorphize them and uh, make it to where you can hear their thoughts and experience their dreams. And it gets, it gets pretty trippy. I really like those. Um, so I'm, what I'm going to say is live long and prosper. And you can't see me, but I'm trying to do the Live Long and Prosper Vulcan hand sign, and that's hard for me to do. I have a little bit of nerve damage in my hand that keeps me from, well, I can do it with the other one, that's, that's cool. All right, so Live Long and Prosper, and as usual, here's a little bit of sleep dust to uh, get, get, get us in the mood. a young lad there was a show well, the show still exists but it was new when I was young and uh, it was called Star Trek the next generation and my folks and my brother my sister wasn't born yet but my folks and my brother they weren't too keen on that show so I only got to watch it when they were doing other things and it happened to be on so it wasn't often kind of a rare treat for me and I had uh, and then I you know of course I grew up as we all do and uh, and I got you know got a little older went to high school went to middle school and then uh, met met people who were really into the show who had families who were also into the show so it, it they got to watch it more often uh, and I lived vicariously through them because I I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the show it, uh, it, um, it really 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 uh, great stuff and 
So when I, um, I, I grew up more <laughs> and, I, and I became an adult and then this thing called streaming uh, happened, it came into existence and now it's ubiquitous, but at the time maybe, maybe not so much. But anyway, I, um, so I said, okay, cool, I can, I can watch. All. And then instead of starting at Star Trek The Next Generation, I started with the original series. I wanted to go in chron chronological order and really immersed myself in, in this whole Star Trek universe. And I'm still, I guess what you would call a, a Trekkie light. Uh, I'm not full of uh, Star Trek-related facts. Uh, I, I know more than the average person, but I'm, I'm not what you call a die-hard fan. I, I'm still very uh, into the whole universe. But, uh, but uh, anyway, I digress, which I guess is okay with this type of podcast, digressing. It's really just supposed to be boring. So uh, streaming happened, and uh, I started watching it from the beginning, and I freaking fell in love with it. It was just so amazing. And then, I've, and then I worked through the original series, and then I worked through The Next Generation, and right now I'm about halfway through with Deep Space Nine. So instead of binging... Like I used to, I only catch an episode now and then, and I think that's better, really. For me, for me it's better. So what we're going to do now is we're going to start off uh, on in, uh, imdb.com, that's Internet Movie Database. Um, and there is a... Um, just randomly picked an episode from the original series, and it's, I'm going to read some trivia from it. It's called uh, Turnabout Intruder. That's the, that's the name of the episode from the original series. It aired in 1969. Uh, because the original series was canceled instead of coming to a natural end, and the idea of a series finale was not as popular in the 1960s, uh, Turnabout Intruder was a closer to a normal episode and did not have the final touches. Okay, this is the last episode. Okay, The remastered version of Turnabout Intruder, Intruder ended with the Enterprise flying towards a colorful nebula to artistically signify the episode as being the last of the TOS series. TOS is the original series. The episode is subtly referenced in Star Trek The Next Generation Legacy. That's a 1990 movie. Jean-Luc Picard mentions that they are bypassing an archaeological survey of Camus or Camus to the same planet that the episode begins on. Uh, this is mentioned because with the airing of its 80th episode legacy, Star Trek The Next Generation officially became longer than the original Star Trek. William Shatner had a severe case of flu during the filming of this episode. At one point, he had to lift Sandra Smith in his arms, carry her to a couch, and put her on it. During the first take, he got as far as the couch and dropped her. Fortunately, it was well padded, and Smith bounced several times. According to Joni Winston, who was visiting the set, Shatner looked down at Smith and said, You know I love you, baby, but you gotta lose about six inches off that. Uh, ASS. Uh, that's a biblical donkey for those of you who are wondering. The transposition sequence was the last footage shot for the original series. 
The episode was originally scheduled to broadcast on March 28, 1969. Special network coverage of the um, passing of Dwight D. Eisenhower preempted it, and it didn't air until June 3rd. Gene Roddenberry regretted the fine or regretted the line about the Federation supposedly not allowing female captains as he felt it was sexist and and obviously in future uh, iterations of Star Trek there are plenty of officer uh, females including captains. Uh, Leonard Nimoy is the only actor to appear in every episode of the series. William Shatner appeared in every episode with the exception of the first pilot. Star Trek The Cage. That was 1966. Nurse Chapel's hair color is brown for this episode, not its usual blonde color. Uh, the production crew nicknamed this episode Captain Kirk Space Queen. Though her voice is muffled, Dr. Lester protests to Dr. Coleman, go to hell. A rare case of swear sneaking past the network censors. Leonard Nimoy and uh, uh, Michelle Barrett are the only actors to appear in both the series finale and the first pilot, Star Trek The Cage. Turnabout Intruder, which is the final episode of the original series, takes place in 2269, four years before Star Trek, the motion picture, which took place in 2273, even though they were released 10 years apart. According to Harry Landers, he was very fatigued during the, uh, this episode because he had just had his upper right lung removed due to an infection. Ouch. He wanted to turn the role down, but uh, did not. Uh, he did it as a favor to producer Fred uh, Freiberger. Freiberger. Lieutenant Galloway appears in this episode despite being killed by Robin Tracy in Star Trek The Omega Glory. He was credited as Galloway, misspelled as G-A-L-O-W-A-Y even though actor David L. Ross had been cast as Lieutenant Johnson in Star Trek, Dave the Dove, after the, char uh, the character Galloway was uh, offed. Now, although this was the last episode of the original series to be filmed and aired, the episode has a lower star date than the previous episode, Star Trek All Are Yesterdays. Interesting. I, I never understood the Stardate stuff, anyway. What does it mean? Uh, two days after two years on the series, Roger Holloway finally gets to speak dialogue. All of two words. His character's name, uh, Lemley, was the same as William Shatner's license plate at the time, a mixture of his daughter's Leslie, uh, Melanie, and Elizabeth's names. Um, the only... This is the only time in TOS that Captain Kirk is portrayed by an actor, namely Sandra Smith. What? Another actor. Oh. At the 50th anniversary Star Trek convention in Las Vegas in 
August of 2016's fans voted this the fourth worst episode of the Star Trek franchise. In Roman mythology, Janus was a two-faced head representing opposite aspects in nature, uh, such as chaotic nature and controlled civilization. Lester means in Old English locality, hence Janus Lexer, a split personality from nearby or within. I really hope the noise from construction is not seeping into the microphone. Lieutenant Uhura does not appear in this episode. Lieutenant Uhura, I'm actually, for the first time, watching Heroes, that show from kind of the early 2000s, I guess. And uh, The actress, her name escapes me, but she's in it. Pretty neat show. Lots of Star Trek references in that show. Despite the series' progressive racial and gender politics, this episode takes a rather misogynistic view that a woman cannot capably command a starship. Fortunately, this was remedied less than 20 years later with a female captain in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. This takes place in 2269. Okay, these are sort of repeating themselves. Shatner, who was ill with the flu. Okay. Uh, oh, he, he was able to nap on a cot when he needed to. Paramount Television canceled Star Trek during the production of this episode. Uh, the network's abrupt decision to end the show, prompted by anemic ratings, came as a surprise to the production staff and cast. On the 25th episode, The Joy Machine, uh, a 25th episode, The Joy Machine was already in pre-production, along with plans for at least one more episode to run out season three. Round out season three. The Joy Machine was subsequently published as a Star Trek novel in 1996. Uh, production ran one week longer than expected and $6,000 over budget. Uh, here's some spoilers. Uh, uh, plot hole. The officers could have easily quizzed each Captain Kirk separately on past events and conversations. Only the real Kirk would have known the answers. They didn't need to rely on Spock's telepathic ability which was inadmissible in court. Uh, Dr. Lester's ruses Captain Kirk fell apart rather quickly because she didn't know the Enterprise crew was so well trained in Starfleet procedures. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's go to what do we what do we want? Well, let's do this Memory Alpha website. It's raining now. Hopefully can hear it and it doesn't bother you but soothes you and if you can't that's okay let's actually let's try star trek.com slash articles slash harsh reviews of the original series from 1966 believe it this is by the star trek.com staff um, like it's collected on uh, these articles were collected in september of 2016 Uh, it says here, Star Trek, the original series, will turn 50 tomorrow. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable achievement and a testament to the staying power of Gene Roddenberry's wagon train to the stars. But don't for a minute think that everyone everywhere embraced Star Trek from the get-go. 
more than a few critics did not care for the series when they reviewed the first episode of The Man Trap. I've met a few ladies who are like that. Um, the fact that, in fact, they trashed the show, StarTrek.com, with the help of uh, Maria Jose and John uh, Tenuto, our friends and StarTrek.com bloggers, tracked down some old newspaper clips below, or a few excerpts. And be sure to search the actual articles to see just how far from sensation Star Trek was back in 1966. Okay, on this, this cutout article from the newspaper, it's got Grace Lee Whitney, who's a crew member, William Shatner, it says Spaceship Commander. It's got that neat grainy look to it, like you would expect an old newspaper to have. It says, Space Show to Debut. And I think the word debut is funny because it looks like debut. <laughs> debut. Star Trek set by NBC. I'm going to have to zoom in to read this. Since the crew of the USS Enterprise is threatened by the presence aboard of a strange creature, which induces death by extracting the salt content from its victims in the man trap. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, never mind. Uh, the premiere episode of Star Trek to be seen in color. I had to mention that. This is 1966 on uh, KW, KYW TV from 8.30 to 9.30 p.m. Thursday. Captain Kirk and his vessel, the Enterprise, are on a Periodic visit to planet M113. <clears throat> Their objective is to give space archaeologist Professor Crater uh, and his wife Nancy, also an archaeologist, their regular medical examinations. It quickly becomes apparent that all is not well on M113. Or is that M113? It's 311 backwards. Everyone who sees Nancy sees her as a different person. To one, she is young and beautiful. To another, she's middle-aged. Wait, it doesn't say middle-aged and beautiful. That's, as a middle-aged person, I'm going to have to go travel time travel back to 1966 and get them to change that. I'm quite offended. To another, old, and yet to others, she ranges from light and fair to dark and sultry. I like that word, sultry. Uh, this situation becomes even more tense when, without warning, several crewmen die without apparent cause. Autopsy discloses that they died of a common cause, salt depletion. It is then that Professor Crater explains the mystery and the threat to the Enterprise is eliminated by means of phaser gun in an exciting climax. Well, this one is pro-Trek, I guess. Uh, the Man Trap was directed by Mayor Daniels and producer Gene Roddenberry. Star Trek is a DeSulu production. Well, okay. Star Trek is... Okay, th this is this is no longer the article. and This is back to the, the blogger. It says, Star Trek is frankly weird. But the costumes and visual effects are right out of the old Frankenstein movies. It's a shocker, baby, if you're easily shocked. 
maybe that isn't. Here, let's let's go to this next one. It says uh, save tube space for Star Trek. Huh? Uh, okay, it's got a picture of who I guess is a man named Dick Cleaner. <laughs> Kleiner. Hey, uh, Hollywood Hollywood correspondent, newspaper enterprise. ASSN period. I'm going to say that's assassin. The newspaper enterprise assassin. Watch out, everybody. Hollywood, NEA. Looking through some old notes, I came across those I made after an interview with Ed Wynn about a year ago, and these words leapt out at me, or leaped. Not, I didn't say leapt, I said leaped. Okay. I still have one ambition. It said, I want to die in good health. Okay. <laughs> okay. One of the shows on next fall schedule, which I am looking forward to, is NBC Star Trek. I like its science fiction, and this appears to qualify. Gene Roddenberry, the creator and producer, is a science fiction fan too. So he will treat the subject with loving care, indeed. There really haven't been very many good attempts at sci-fi on the screen, Roddenberry says. Most of them are monster shows, and I didn't want to do that. Star Trek is set aboard an interplanetary cruiser, which houses some 400 people, so there will never be a shortage of guest stars. The stories will involve the passengers, the creatures they meet on other planets, the other spaceships they encounter. Doing a show of this... Uh, do, I'm sorry, doing, <laughs> doing a show of this sort presents many production problems which you don't have on, say, a Western. We can't use stock footage, Roddenberry says, nor can we go to Western costume and say, send me a rack of Martian clothes. Everything we use has to be imagined, designed, built. Making futuristic sets and prompts can be an expense and very time-consuming. Roddenberry, however, want to the prototype machine which sprays plastic. They can quickly coat a carton, for example, and if you put a couple of plastic-coated cartons together, you've got something that looks strange enough to be futuristic. If you like science fiction, watch for Star Trek. It should be right up your galaxy. The changing concept of morality on film is open for discussion. Many look upon what's happening as degradation, but Claire Huffaker, one of Hollywood's best, better writers, considers going up to the top of the article. It progress. If things keep up this way for another 50 years, Huffaker says, we might approach the Greek theater of 3,000 years ago. Huffaker answers the charge that today's movies are bad for children this way. My own moral values were firmly established when I was six years old. Wow. How does that happen? And I don't think they changed much since then. Hmm. I believe most children are the same. Well then, Huffaker is one of the most prolific writers around. One year, he turned out 100 movies. Of these, eight have, or 10 movies, 100. Mm. Three days, in, three and a half days, in, okay. Uh, eight have been made into movies, or not, he wrote 10 novels in one year. 
good lord. Uh, one was called Bad Man. It's about a uh, about to be filmed as War Wagon with John Wayne. Um, I think that's a different article. Well, anyway, there's some John Wayne stuff. And this uh, this is uh, here we go. Science fiction like Spirit by Ed Gorman. Science fiction like Alka Seltzer is intended for fast and temporary relief of minor. And in this case, literary heartburn. It provides essentially not an escape from the problems of the times, but from the literature of the times, a literature devoid of the intellectual spirit, which is, you know, I, I wanted to read some bad articles about, you know, about my one of my favorite shows at first, but I don't think I'm going to put, put this on my podcast anymore. I like, I like the positive stuff. Let's, uh, for now, I mean, I might do it later, whatever. Let's go to Astounding Stories. And this is Plug Mag, Mag's content slash info slash Astounding Stories dot HTML. It's an archive of all fiction pulplet magazines from 1896 to 1946. The aesthetic of the website is very 1990s. Uh, it says sounding stories inspired by the success of Hugo Gernsback's Amazing Stories. Clayton Publishing Company released in January of 1930, the first issue of Astounding Stories. Early issues lacked much of Grinsback's attention to the scientific and explorative possibilities of the science fiction genre and instead featured many instances of stock pulp adventure yarns simply transplanted, and transplanted into exotic or alien environments, or possibly a travesty in the eyes of science fiction purists. It attracted many science fiction fans and general pulp readers and aided astounding first three years of survival until its cancellation during the height of the Great Depression in March of 1933. Thankfully, the, the departure was short-lived. The pulp industry giant Street and Smith Court published the title, and in October of 1933, Astounding Stories returned. The stock adventure stories had appeared previously, uh, that had appeared previously were replaced what editor F. Orlin Tremaine dubbed thought variants, stories that were just as interesting and exciting, but also held some scientific or technological truth at their core. This approach combining the adventure of the pulps with the ideas of Gernsbeckian exploration extrapolation in addition to social, political, and introspective elements increasingly incorporated by its author's stories would help define astounding in the coming years. In other words, it was no longer an amazing stories clone or an adventure magazine masquerading as science fiction, but a unique addition to the growing stable of science fiction literature. In May of 1938, John Wood Campbell, a writer and assistant editor under Tremaine took over the editorship. Straight up took it over. Uh, 
of Astounding Stories, Campbell would hold his post for 33 years, a remarkable tenure in itself, during which time he helped shape science fiction literature for many more decades to come. It was in this period that Campbell discovered such science fiction mainstays as Lister Del Rey, not to be confused with Lana Del Rey, Theodore Sturgeon, Clifford Samak, Isaac Asimov, and Elon Hubbard, and all his clones. Hubbard's Dianetic Theories were introduced to readers of the magazine in May of 1950. Honoring Tremaine's thought variants, Campbell wanted stories that were from the view of man involved in the events rather than a story of a gadget. As Lester Duray described Campbell's approach, one was more likely to find a rookie starship crewman or hitherto unrecognized scientific prodigy as the protagonist of a Campbell story, as opposed to the ace space captain or world-renowned physicist that had made up the bulk of science fiction heroes dating back to the days of Gernsback. As Campbell wrote in an editorial, it is the man, not the idea of the machine, that is the essence of science fiction. Continuing an astounding tradition that had dated back to its inception, Campbell paid top dollar on time to his authors, um, something Grinsback and many other science fiction magazine editors rarely succeeded in doing. This practice guaranteed that not only seasoned science fiction veterans, but uh, also budding hopefuls often submitted their manuscripts to Campbell's editorial offices first, Along with amazing stories, uh, discussions, astounding letters, section, brass tacks, also served as an important venue for communication and discussion within the emerging organized science fiction fan community. Hoping to distance the magazine further from its more sensational pulp origins and subsequently to create a more futurology-oriented image for it. Campbell changed the magazine's title to Astounding Science Fiction in 1938, and later to Analog Science Fact and Fiction in 1960. In November of 1992, the logo was revised to read Fiction and Fact, rather than Fact and Fiction, but Analog is the name by which the magazine is still known to this day. The magazine is included in the Library of the International Space Station, and in 2011, it became the longest-running continuously published magazine dedicated to the science fiction genre. Nathan Vernon Mag Madison, Virginia Commonwealth University.
is a planet outside of our solar system, and uh, he's uh, physically very similar to the human anatomy, but his uh, psychological and emotional orientation are quite different. He has complete emotional control. He's very scientifically oriented and is a very logical creature. The uh, point is that Vulcan was a planet that was very warlike and a very fierce race of people who almost did themselves in because they were always in conflict with each other and their emotions were so strong that they finally decided that emotion had to be done away with. And it became uh, uh, a wise choice to uh, control emotions and gradually breed them out of the race so that they could function more logically and survive. Well, you very seldom show emotion then. Is this very difficult? Seldom. Well, you mean from an acting point of view? Yes, from acting. <coughs> Excuse me. Not, uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but of course that's my job. Uh, showing emotion or not showing emotion, whichever the case yes. may be, is the actor's craft. You know, I'm often surprised when a, when a man comes in uh, to my house and can fix a leaky faucet, you know, uh, that I've been working on perhaps for a couple hours and only managed to make it worse, you see. That's his craft. He comes in and does it. My craft is to play interesting and unusual characters. Why is your part so successful, do you suppose? Well, I think there are a lot and of reasons. Well, evidently, yeah. Yes. Uh, the male would, would seem to indicate that. There are a lot of reasons. I think uh, it starts with the physical appearance. I think the fact that he is uh, such a, uh, a wise individual. I think people are, are fascinated with the idea that, that a man in the future may know something that we don't know today. I think they look to him for answers. He's a very dignified man and commands respect. Uh, he's uh, obviously very intelligent. The control of the emotions, I think, is a very important thing. The fact that he's cool, the fact that he's sophisticated, he doesn't get riled in a situation. He has control of himself. All of these things are working. Your makeup is most unusual. Does that take a long time? To well, it takes an hour and a half, which, after you've done it for the 150th, 175th time, seems like a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> and whose idea was it to have pointed ears? Well, that started with Gene Roddenberry, who's the creator of the series, the executive producer. He, uh, he saw the character with pointed ears and various other physical things which we experimented with. And, and I should say that just before we started shooting the show, we had experimented with four or five different types of ears. And we were not happy with any of them. And I got a little nervous about it. I thought this is going to be awful funny if these ears don't look right. And I went to Gene and I asked him to give up the idea of the pointed ears. And he said, no, he wouldn't. We're going to keep working on this and we'll get it right eventually. And he said, I promise you that if you do the show with the ears, at the end of 13 episodes, if you're not happy, I'll write you a script where you get an ear job. What are they made of? They're made of foam rubber. And it's a, it's a tip. A foam rubber tip that's cast in a mold that's made specifically for my ear, and it fits up on top of my ear. And it takes about an hour and a half. Not just for the ears, the just eyebrows, for the entire, and the entire makeup. Uh -huh. yeah. Is it, are they uncomfortable to wear at all? Oh, sometimes, but uh, not terribly. I've more or less gotten used to them. My ears have become accustomed to the point. To being pointed. <laughs> You're definitely tight now. Can you think of other parts? Uh, do you think it'll be difficult to take other parts? I really don't worry about that for this reason. If, if I were to concern myself with that while I was playing Spock, I think that playing Spock would cease to be the pleasure that it is. I'm having as much fun playing him as I possibly can. When the time comes to think about other characters, I'll start thinking about that then. Well, it is so successful. It could go on for years anyway, couldn't it? Well, I would hope so. I'd, I'd like to have a steady job for a while. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any time off? We take a hiatus, which we just finished, uh, in the spring. I had about 10 weeks off, during which I made several trips around the country. I was in Medford, Oregon. I was in uh, New York 
three different uh, three different occasions: um, Washington, San Francisco, New Mexico, and so forth. And then now we're back to work. But while we're shooting, I don't have any time off now, except on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. People recognize you, don't they? Yeah, I guess the hair makes it pretty easy to spot. Of course, I have had young children in the stores and places when I've been shopping say, that man has a haircut just like Spock. Really? <laughs> yeah. And they didn't realize what they were saying. Well, and then on a second look, they say, could it be? You know, that kind of thing. Well, it is your own hair. Yes, it is. It's a bit of a beautiful, yeah. nice and thick. The speed of your ship, how fast does it go? Well, we, uh, we get into trouble if we try to move any faster than warp eight, which what's, what's is warp eight, eight times the speed of light. It's awful fast. We have gone faster than that in rare emergencies, but we try to avoid that because it's awful rough on the ship and it's rough on the system. I would think so. Well, beaming down, is that painful? Beaming down, you mean that process when we leave the ship leave, and get uh, yeah. down onto a planet? No, it's not as a rule. Uh, what, it, what it amounts to is uh, very briefly, we take uh, matter, which is the human body, and we convert that to energy, and we move it from one place to another, just the way you move a television picture from the studio into people's homes. And when we get it to the place we want it to be, we reconvert it to matter. Now, under uh, ordinary circumstances... How long does that take? How much oh, time? just a few just seconds. Like a few seconds, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, just, it doesn't take very long for the picture to get from the studio to somebody's home, for example. Uh, that's under normal circumstances. We don't have any difficulties. Sometimes we run into barriers, just the way a person runs into trouble if they have a mountain between the studio and their home. Their reception is a little difficult, and getting through those mountains is kind of rough. Well, you know? What do you do in a case like that? Oh, suffer a lot. Yeah. It's painful then. Is yeah. a lot of suffering going on? <laughs> no, we make it all right. <laughs> well, are there any of these things that you do, could they actually take place scientifically? The scientists tell me that they could. The people uh, in the various NASA installations that I've visited, and, and they're certainly the people whose opinions I respect, tell me that we work constantly with a thread of scientific possibility in our shows, that we're not doing fantasy, that we're doing potential science fiction. We're doing science fiction, which means potential science possibility. You know. Are you married? Yes, I am. My wife's name is Sandy. We've been married for 13 years. I have a, a daughter, Julie, who's 12, and a son, Adam, who's 10. What do the children think of this part that you take? My children? Yes. They're very excited about it and very proud of it, I think, particularly because Spock is a character that you can take pride in. You know, it's nice for a change for me to be playing a character that my children can be can be pleased to identify with. For a long time, I played some pretty nasty characters, and I don't think they were too excited about that. Do they always watch your show? Always, yeah. Well, you've been a delightful guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for it's been being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.